Yes, indeed. Nitro's the glory, but E-Buggy pays the bills. Had you told me back in episode 12 that I'd still be saying these words like 200 more times, I would have thought you would have been crazy. But uh, in this NNR, NNRC replay, I go back to the Mark Pavitas interview, uh, episode 12. I think this was this had to be early 2019 that I did this. Uh, still feeling my way out in with interviewing people, still getting confident. Uh, I was still kind of feeling my way out, I guess you would say, interviewing people, finding, even finding my voice because uh, I tried to hide my accent a lot because my Bermudian accent, sometimes I talk too fast. Even now, I'm not talking in my full Bermudian accent. But it was it was so great to have Mark on. He was a legend. He was a guy that I read about in magazines at this time. I had never met him at a race at, at this time. You got to remember, I probably, so I did go, I hadn't even been to DNC 2018. So this was before that. Uh, and uh, no, sorry, correction. This was DNC 20, this had to be DNC 2019 that I was going to have been to DNC 2018. Yeah, I had to think just now uh, because I, I, yeah. Anyway, so this was DNC 2019 that I, I did finally get to meet him, I believe. And I remember he was driving in his car, driving through the mountains. It was not that good of uh, good of a signal. I wasn't really good at processing audio. Uh, it, I remember the volume being really low for people. So I wanted it to, you know, I, I've always thought that it was a great interview, but the audio wasn't great. And I was able to process it, put it on my magic audio processor, and it came out okay. It's still, you can hear that he's on a phone and he's driving in a car. But uh, I think this is also another person that I need to revisit. He's also one person that I heard Greg talk about highly all the time. He says, yes, he was a rival, but he was also one of the best, if not the best he's ever seen. And you can hear... Like I got to see, you know, I got to see Greg and and Mark interact at the recent worlds and in, in last year in Redavon. And you can see the mutual respect that they both had for each other, I think, after all these years. And uh it's funny because Mark came up to me and is like, you know what, Lefty, I really do like your podcast and I listen to them all. And I think I'm pretty good friends with his son, Ryan, who I think is extremely talented. And when he said that to me, I just remember saying, Wow, really? Somebody like you like a legend like yourself listens to what some idiot from Bermuda has to say who talks too much, but really good interview with him. We need to get him back on. He's, he's going to a lot more races with Ryan. Now he was at the worlds. They gave him a special ceremony as well. Like they were introducing all the world champions from the past. So that was pretty cool, but definitely somebody I would like to revisit. He talks about his departure from AKA. He had not started. I can't, be, I don't think he started work of a hot race yet. I can't remember. Uh, but I hope you guys enjoy it. Remember, he was driving in a car while doing this. So the audio exact, that's exactly what the audio sounds like. We did clean it up a little bit, but it's and, and boost the audio so you can, the volume so you can hear it a little bit better. But here is the episode 12 interview with Mark Pavitas. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. And we need to get him on the podcast again. What do you guys think? Anyway, let's get over to Mark. So what's up, guys? Welcome to the No Name RC Podcast, Episode Twelve: Legends of RC. We have uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Mark Pavitas here with us today, two thousand and six, uh, eight scale world champion. What's up, Mark? How are you? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. How's things in California today? Uh, it's it's a cool 82 degrees and no humidity. Uh, okay, that's good. How do you think the weather's going to be yep. around DNC time next month? Uh, February typically is a little bit of a wetter month for mm-hmm. California. And where the DNC is, um, that area tends to get pretty cold in the evenings. Okay. So, um, but, you know, the race started out in Hemet, California. Mm-hmm. And so where the event's taking place this year is not too far from its its origin. Okay. So. That should be cool. Um, so. Yeah. In case you guys don't know who Mark Pavitas are, you're probably living under a proverbial a proverbial RC rock. But he's uh, a multiple multiple time world champion in ten scale. Well, he won ten scale in 1995 four wheel four wheel drive tramp, 2006 eight scale off road championship in Jakarta, and he's also a ten scale on road champion. Multiple, I think, two time Reedy race champion and on road champion. And multiple national titles and probably multiple big race wins that we can't even name. But if you don't know who he is, then you guys will know at the end of this podcast. So I don't, I don't know, man. Let's get. St- I don't. I don't really want to dwell too much on your early years. But I did read the other day on a, in your biography that you got started with a Tamiya car at a track in Costa Mesa. How did that come about? Yeah. So um, you know. My dad, at the time, we were looking to do a hobby together, and uh, we went to the local hobby store, and, you know, at the time, RC cars really weren't super popular. Um, I mean, this is probably two, maybe three years before the RC10, mm-hmm. you know, really came out, and uh, anyway, so my dad, he, he's been, he was in the Navy, and he really wanted to get an RC airplane, so... We went to the hobby store, he got an RC airplane, and at that time, you don't buy an RC airplane, and then, you know, 30 minutes later, it's in the air. Um, back in those days, you, you have to build everything that you had, right? So, it took him a few months to build it, and we went to the flying field, and it took him a few seconds to crash it. No way. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, back then, I was like, oh, all this hard work is gone. You know, I was like six, seven, I'm crying. Like, this isn't any fun. So we went back to the hobby shop. My dad went to get another airplane. And that's kind of when I saw the cars under the counter there. And, um, yeah, so my first car, true car, um, was a Super Champ. To me, a Super Champ. Okay. And uh, you raced at a, a track in Costa Mesa. What track was that? It was uh, it was called RCH, and it, at the time they had a small little retail shop on 19th Street in Costa Mesa, mm-hmm. and a little outdoor track, a uh, little dirt area in the parking lot there, and people would pull up, pop their hoods, uh, hook up their chargers to the car battery, charge their batteries, and then race. Um, so that was kind of you know my first local track experience with RCH in Costa Mesa. Okay. Did hey, did you ever meet Jay Smoker in those times? That's his neighborhood around there and he keeps t- Yeah, that's that's his neighborhood, but um I never ran into him. Okay. Crazy. He's he's oh he tells me all the time that he invented Truggy. I gotta get him here on the podcast. I'll be I'll be seeing him soon anyway when we get to California. Yeah. So 
after you got in, you started racing. How did it progress from there? How did you get your first sponsorships? Like, what was your timeline pretty much like? Um, yeah, I spent the first, I'd say, probably three years okay. um, just kind of doing RC. Um, not really competing at a high level. It was more just for fun. And you'd build jumps in your backyard or race it down the street. And then... Um, there was a local indoor track, pretty much the first local indoor track in Southern California. It was called Hot Track, and it was a really small indoor track, um, not very big at all. But anyway, you'd go there, and back when we all had wiper arm speed controls, and and uh, you'd show up, and and I remember that was the first time I saw Jay Halsey and his dad. They just won the world championships not too long after I started racing and I was like, Oh, that's the guy that won that race. And he's, you know, he's got his standing next to his car and, and all that stuff. And so anyway, one thing led to another and I started racing and then, um, more and more. And, um, I got a job at the local track, which was hot tracks at the time and just helping them, you know, get the track ready for the, for the next night's racing. And, and um, anyway, kind of because a lot of the RC industry was in Southern California, that was their local go-to track. So I I got in touch with Mike Reedy through the hobby shop, and at one of the events he gave me a modified motor to try out. Just I, no sponsorship, but he just said, "Hey, give this a try. Why don't you try modified some night at your local race?" And and um, I think it was 1988, I ended up entering the Reedy race, which was the very first Reedy race at Hot Track. Um, it was the year that Chris Moore won, I believe. Chris Moore and Chris Alec, he won the, that won the invitational class. And I made the D-Main. And during my D-Main, I ended up crashing or something, and the and the magnet and the motor fell out and Mike came over, saw that I had this issue and he gave me a brand new motor. Really? Just so I could keep racing. Keep That's racing. Cool. That's cool. So, yeah. Very cool. So, that's kind of the guy that Mike Reedy was mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, he, he's really the one that kind of got me to that next level in racing. Because I, I couldn't afford to race all the time. and So we kind of got to knew, know each other and, and through the hobby shop. And, you know, a few months more went by. And, you know, I won a couple of local, um, just local events that they'd have there, you know, in the stock class. And that's when Mike kind of offered me a very small sponsorship. You know, some tires, some wheels, and, you know, a couple parts. But nothing, no car kits or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But that, that's kind of how it evolved. And then eventually, um, from there, I worked for Cliff Lett in his garage packaging turnbuckles. And, and then eventually, uh, yeah, he ended up working at Associated part-time during high school. Yeah. That's pretty cool because we're talking about Reedy and the Reedy race is going on at the moment. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So you worked with Cliff Clifflet packaging turnbuckles then to Associated. So I guess, I'm guessing Cliff took you with you when he went to work for Associated. 
Yeah, so even before I started, I was kind of in the in helping out at the track, and then I was working, also working uh, part time on the weekends too. At uh, I don't know, most people might know Hobby Hobby Shack or Hobby People. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And, and, yep, and uh, they had a hobby store not too far from my house, so so I went Hobby Shack, and then part time at the RC track working, and then worked part-time in Cliff's Garage packaging turnbuckles and bodies for RC performance. And then, um, yeah, and then started working part-time after school for Team Associated, which led to a full-time opportunity. Yeah, so what was your job description at Associated when you you went full-time? Yeah, so when I I started there, I was just more or less kind of helping Mike Greedy prepare motors and batteries for events that they were going to go to. And then once I got hired on full time was kind of about the same time when we started going to more events. So I was also racing. And then when we weren't going to big races, I was working uh, under Mike Reedy, you know, pretty much doing the batteries and, you know, uh, stuff with the motors and, Pretty much anything that involved reading modified. <clears throat> okay. Interesting. Yeah. So this is yeah. like early 90s, I would say, like 90, 91, 89. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yep. And then uh, towards the end of my time there at Associated, it kind of evolved. You know, racing became more and more of a, uh, a mainstay, and people were getting paid now to go race full time. So it became more of an R&D position. Towards mm. the end of my time at uh, working more under Cliff, okay. and Associated. Okay. So now you're moving to when you went from the R and D. When do you start becoming like Mark Pavita's professional racer, and that's your like pretty much your whole job? Yeah, I mean, I never. During my whole career, RC racing career, I never just RC raced. Okay. I always RC raced, and when I went back, I'm I'm an employee at Associated. So I was never like the guys now. They're just RC racers. They're mm-hmm. just they're contracted RC racers that they get paid to go to the track and produce results. They don't want them coming in and and pulling orders or answering the telephone they're strictly paid to go racing okay so you was you always had a real job per se correct as, along yep. with racing so when yep. did you uh when did you actually start i would say traveling more and do and racing more than like I, i'm guessing they actually sent you out to race a lot more once you know like obviously once you started getting results so I, I'm guessing getting time off from work to race and whatnot was not an issue. So, like, no, it wasn't. A, yeah, it wasn't an issue. So it'd be like the guys now, the Cavaliers, the Tivos, uh, Mayfield. So same, same, same thing for me. Any big event, I'd go to. But mm-hmm. if there's any downtime when there's no event, then that's when I would be at work. Okay. Did you still yeah. do a lot of club racing on the weekends and stuff like that as well? Yeah, usually I'd go race once, maybe twice a week back okay. then, you know. Right. You was busy, dude. That's a lot of that. Well, I guess that's what you have to do to, to become the best, don't you? 
Yeah, it was busy. I mean, of course, all of this was pre any type of girlfriend or any kids or family or anything like that. So, you know, it was just me. I didn't have to worry about anyone else um, until kind of later in my career is when I started, you know, I had a wife, I had a family. So, um, but all in the early stages, yeah, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a lot of traveling. So when did you, uh, when did you win your first of your Reedy races? What year was that? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> like the nineties before you, you yeah. before your first world champ, before your first world championship in 95. Yeah, maybe it was probably all around that time. Mm-hmm. So being as you came up racing fully in the nineties, let's talk about a little bit about RC in the 90s, 10th scale and 8th scale. I'm pretty sure 10th scale was king in this time. But 8th scale started yeah, to come yeah. around as well, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. 8th scale starts coming around. And then, uh, you know, I love I love just the gas side of it. Mm-hmm. And I was never around it getting into the RC stuff. Just because it was always not very reliable. You know, that was kind of... The whole gas thing, that's what it was known for. It was just, it's cool, but yeah, it lasts five minutes or breaks down, you know. Um, but kind of about the time I was getting into it, it started to gain a lot of traction. And the cars were more reliable. The engines were really good. And you can go and compete at these races. And, you know, your stuff wasn't falling apart or shutting off. So mm-hmm. it became really fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Be- the whole another side of RC racing that I'd never seen before, and it really intrigued me. Yeah, what did was what year was that? Was that when gas truck really started to take off? Because a lot of these guys, exactly. I, yeah, a lot of these guys that I talked to, I I done one with Tebow. Um, Degani always says it too. Like that's Saxton said it. It was like back then, eight scale was second, and gas truck was king. So very true. And it was like, if you can wheel a gas truck with, with you guys, because you was like one of the names that was brought up as like one of the guys that were to beat back in the day, you, Matt Francis, um, obviously, who else? I think Quartz was mentioned in there. A lot of the old school guys, Saxton. So when did that, I, I, I kind of asked this to, to Saxton too. When did the shift start ultimately from 10th scale to 8th scale predominantly? Like 10th scale gas truck, sorry. To eight scale car, um, you know, back when ga- gas trucks kind of got was taking off, that's when the manufacturers, both Losi, um, Associated, and even Kyosho at the time, they were all producing these gas trucks or developing them, and they were all American made, you know, mm-hmm. at the time. So, except for the Kyosho one, but uh, it really drove the companies here to have some type of gas off-road vehicle and the the comp the u.s companies low c or associated they didn't want to pursue the eight scale market because it wasn't big enough mm-hmm. um but at the time you go to these big races and you just don't want to run one class so what happened was we ended up getting a hold of the eight scale manufacturer and for me at the time it was uh mugen Mm-hmm. And I got a hold of them, and you know they don't know any of us over here at the time. And I said, "Hey, I'm Mark Pavitas. I race here in the U.S., and they can barely understand me because I'm calling Japan." And 
they decided, okay, we'll, we'll send you something. And then their U S distribution was just starting up at the same time. So got a car and yeah. So that's kind of how things kind of paralleled at the events that I had a gas truck. That was my main priority. And then this eight scale car to kind of fill in the time, the downtime. What, um, what, first, what was your first Mugen car? Was it the super athlete? Yeah, super okay. athlete. So the engine was on the other side and whatnot. That's pretty yep. cool. Yeah, the engine was the opposite side. The gas tank was in the rear, the left rear, I believe. Mm. And then, um, yeah, backwards, the spur gear was in the very back by the rear transmission. And wow, that's cool. pretty wild. Yeah, that's that's people wouldn't even remember that type of stuff. Well, these kids nowadays, yeah. they wouldn't. Did you even have a starter yeah. box back then or do you have to bump start it? Yeah, it was a starter box. Okay. All right. Yeah. So as we progress into the 2000s, 10 scale starts to d- pretty much die, I would say. When would you say that 10 scale electric kind of just died? 10 scale electric? Yeah, it died for a while and 8 scale became king. I would like early 2000s. Yeah. Um, it wasn't as popular as it was in the nineties, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the, I think a lot of it, the, the tracks were kind of in a limbo state. I mean, eight scale at the time was just it had, it just drew in so many more people. And I think from the aspect that you have the sound, you have you're at these big outdoor events. It's shooting dirt up in the air, like. I mean, there's something that you can kind of relate to where the, the 10 scale stuff at the time just became kind of boring. You have to cut the motor, you know, the brushes and all the work involved racing back then was, was, was a lot of work um, where you go eight scale racing and you fill it up, you just keep running. Um, and it wasn't until all the brushless stuff and lipo batteries in 10 scale really turn 10 scale around mm-hmm. you know um but yeah but like in the 2000s i would say that's when uh truck started to die truggy took over and then yeah i mean i would say oof, what i would say from 2000 and yeah i would say from when they had been richard had the worlds in 2000 in vegas up until wow well, it's still big people somebody was arguing from the other day said saying nitro is dying and i'm just like no i don't think it's dying i just think uh you know, e-buggy's growing, obviously, because of LiPo. Like you said, LiPo and brushless technology, and, of course, 10 scale. But Nitro is never going to die, right. I don't think. So, you, you know, yeah, every event I've been to, I mean, yeah, it's hard to say, oh, Nitro's dead. I mean, a lot of it is just kind of due to the, the nature of the industry that we see, you know, as far as sales go. But when you go to these events, I mean, they're all jam-packed. Mm-hmm. Crazy. It is. I mean, I'm, we're going after the SIC race was this weekend and it had, okay, it had like 500 and something entries, but I would say maybe 300, 350 people, I think it was there, close to that. So yeah. it's still really jam packed. So you, after you left Mugen, then I'm, I'm taking it. Sorry, I'm just jumping back to 2008 scale. <clears throat> That's, okay. uh, that was when you kind of went to Kyosho after Mugen was Kyosho, correct? Because it was only Mugen and Kyosho back in the day, really. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, end of the 90s, early 2000 there. I think the world in Las Vegas was in 2000. So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, 
that was kind of my first world with a Kyosho car. Yeah. How did that so go for you? Up, uh, yeah, it was good. Um, I think we TQ'd every round of qualifying by either six to 10 seconds every round. And, um, you know, it was the first time that the European drivers came over and kind of experienced a more American style one eight scale world. Mm-hmm. So it really suited the U.S. type style driving. Um, and then back then you had to, the top qualifier was direct into the final. So um, I didn't get to go on the track at all until the until the day of the final, you know, until the final started. Really? And no practice? Yeah, no practice. And I think I got to run in one of the semi-practices back then, um, now that I think about it, but I didn't get to do any racing. It was a very limited amount of time on the track. Hmm. And that kind of hurt me a little bit. And then it got into my head. And then, you know, I got into the, you know, the main started and then just one mistake after another. And yeah, long story short, I think I finished fourth. Yeah. Oh, that's not bad. I mean, that, that, I mean, fourth is still good, but obviously you wanted to win. That's the one Kanai won. Who came, who was on the podium that year? Do you remember? Uh, I, think it was Daniel Reckward and maybe Miguel Matias. Yeah. Maybe. Dude, Miguel's Something been, like that. Miguel's been racing forever too, dude. Jesus. Yeah. It's yeah. Incredible. So yeah, there's a lot of worlds where I, I've been extremely close and how, it never happened. Yeah. Well, how about Uruguay when Dagani won? Yeah. Yeah. I think he sabotaged me. Do you honest. do tell me that story? Because I like to bust his balls every once in a while. No, he he drove good. I know yeah. everyone. You know everyone thinks Greg Degani, but I mean, you know what? I mean, you can talk all the smack you want, but I mean, he he had his program down. I mean, he he drove well. His car didn't fall apart. He was consistent. And in eight scale, if if you're consistent and you don't have any problems. Mm-hmm. Your, your likelihood of doing well, I mean, you just raise the stakes. I mean, so that's what he did. He made, he made sure that his car didn't fall apart, that his engine stayed running, and he stayed on all four tires, and, and that's what he did. And, and he did a really good job of doing it and ended up winning. Yeah. Everyone else had problems. Yeah. I remember watching that. Well, I shouldn't say watching. I remember getting live posts about that. That world's on, on the starting grid when you guys are down there. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. cool. So in 2004 was in Sweden. Uh, I should have done my research, but I can't remember where you finished there. I know that track was very difficult. I remember um, lots of pebbles getting into flywheels. Guys had to put like Lexan shields on their, their chassis to stop that. And uh, was, was that another one you felt that kind of got away? I can't remember if you... Um, um, yeah, a little bit. I think I finished fourth there too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, the one to be was Michael Paulson. That was his home track and that track layout at the time, just, it stayed in and never, it never changed and never varied. We went over to the warm up to test on it and it was a difficult track to go fast on because it was a very high speed track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tip from what a lot of us U.S. drivers, you go down the straightaway, it's a 180, you 
you slow down, turn, and you accelerate to the next corner, brake, mm-hmm. turn again. Well, in Europe, you stay on the gas. You don't, you're not braking. You're not slowing down. You're trying to carry as much speed around these high-speed corners. So it was a lot different style of driving than mm-hmm. what we were used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we, we went, went to the warm-up, and we learned a lot, and uh, ended up coming back, and we were competitive. And we were fighting for top qualifier uh, with Yannick Aguilon. And we, I think we tied on points or he, he got me by one point or something. So it was super close. Yeah. Then he got DQ'd for like 0.5 cc or something like that. That was crazy. Yeah, something crazy. Yeah. I remember watching that world as well, man. It was pretty, I think that track still has that M-shaped uphill um, section. And I think it's AstroTurf now, if I'm not – or grass or something. But – it's still almost yep. exactly the same as it was in 2004. That's the one that yep. uh, Gilliman Ray won. He came out of nowhere to win that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm, pretty cool. So then we go on to 2006 in Jakarta. And a lot of people didn't go to this. Was This the, This is the one that a lot of people didn't go to because they were scared to go to Indonesia, correct? Yeah. I mean, at the time, there was some... There was some bombings going on. Then I, I want to say that there was um, they had the big tsunami there not too long before we were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was on the other side. You know, it was on the other side of Indonesia. But still, you know. Um, but you know, I've been to so many places traveling through for RC, and and everyone says, oh, well, LA is you know people that aren't from LA or you know, come in, they're like, oh, I, I don't know if I'd go there. You know, they, they think of Compton or, you know, what they see in the movies. Mm-hmm. And, and I go, well, of course, every town, every state, country, they all have their bad places. But um, so anyway, we went to Jakarta. We were meeting with uh, one of the representatives from the track. They, they were there at customs to pick us up. I mean, everything was really well taken care of. And the hotel and the place where where the event was was it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I've never been to a world that was that nice. Yeah, I've heard that a couple of times from the people that did go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John John Angus, he still races. He uh, he was the one that kind of put on the event, and uh, yeah, he re- he he and his staff did an amazing job. So the banquet for the final was on a beach. Really? With like tiki torches and yeah, it was really cool. That's cool, man. People, I, I agree with you on that. I live in the Dominican Republic and people's like, oh, it's so dangerous down there. I'm like, yeah, every place is dangerous, but I love it there. So the, I li- yeah. you know, I don't, I don't worry about the dangerous part. I just keep on going. Yeah. So yeah. this is the world's in Jakarta. Now, here's. I I cuz you know obviously I, I talk to Dagani a lot and this is the one that he says he almost 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 won if he said Yannick Iguan broke then he came in and then he broke like half an hour into it and then you won it or may, was it I think that's how he explained it to me so you tell me about this race cuz I always like you know I like to get Dagani you know and catch him out and see what I can say to him next time I see him so yeah Tell me about your experience uh, in that, during that race. So that race, I was top qualifier. So, um, but then now we're going back 
uh, a few years from when I top qualified in Las Vegas to top qualifying in Jakarta. And now IFMAR changed the rules. So now the top qualifier has to race his way into the final. Mm -hmm. So I started first and I had a few issues, but I wasn't really too concerned about it. I go, you know what? You don't have to win. Don't break your car. Let's, let's make the final, you know, don't try to finish in the back, but you know, let's, let's try to get a decent starting spot for the final. So that's what I did. I didn't really push it too much. Um, we ended up, think getting second or third in, in the semi so we started third in the final and uh, but yeah once the main started the track was really blown out and everyone was making mistakes and uh, I happened to fly off the track the very first lap and but I told myself like this is the one you got to do it you know you got it you can't give up and I was so far back but everyone was having problems. So I slowly started catching up and I don't remember what happened to Greg Degani. I just remember the last maybe 25 minutes is Yannick was in the lead and he ended having an issue, whether it was his engine or the Marshall turn, you know, the Marshall cut him out or something. I think that's what Degani said. Yeah. Yeah. So he was out and he had a fairly decent lead. So now I think Scott Hughes was in the lead, or or uh, Gillian Bray. So they were bouncing back the lead back and forth, and I knew that my la- you know they kept saying my lap times, and they were so much faster than those other guys. And we ended up doing one less pit stop than most of the guys do in the final, which allowed us to catch even further back. And uh, yeah, so that's how we ended up coming back, and I I passed Scott with. Scott was in the lead, I think, with five minutes to go, and I passed him. And then he made a couple mistakes, and uh, yeah, I was like, "Wow, this, this is it!" And yeah. we came <laughs> coming across the finish line. You ever watch the video? I, I, I can't even drive my car straight. I'm so nervous, <laughs> and I get kind of stuck on this like concrete uh, barrier. And all I could think about is this thing is going to shut my engine off. So I just held it wide open and it came off, it came off kind of the curb. And then I ended up crossing the line. And once I crossed the line, I, uh, <clears throat> I didn't even see my car. I just looked down to, to Kevin Sharp and Mike Craddock who are pitting me. <clears throat> and I tossed down the radio. Like I just tossed it. I was like, that's it. We want it. And Kevin. <laughs> He even looks up, and same with Mike Craddock. And Mike Craddock just happens to look up at the same time, and it's like right in his face. But he caught it, you know. And uh, he was all worried about driving it because he didn't want to get get us penalized. So yeah, that, yeah, that must so, have been. He actually sent me that video of of when he when he caught it, and um, that's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, I was reading like you consider that your biggest win in RC. So, do you still do you still to this day consider it your biggest win? Yeah, I, I really do, because I think anyone that's raced eight scale really knows that it's it's a challenge. It's, mm-hmm. There's so many things that have to go right in order to win. And I've been close before, like very close, but nothing went right. And even though during the, the Jakarta, 
Florida race that I won. There was a few things that went wrong that I noticed, but for the most part, everything did go right, and mm-hmm. everything didn't go exactly right for second or third, you know, or, you know, Yannick, he was leading the race and he had a problem. So anything can happen. And when you win one and be close like that, I mean, it just makes you feel that much better, you know, to accomplish that, that goal. So That's awesome. I remember that. I was watching, actually watching a bit of the race uh, on YouTube the other night too. And um, like, it's so weird to see the car. Like, I remember that era when the cars had the, you know, the rounded bodies and all that stuff and spoke wheels and yeah. whatnot. But um, very cool. Did you, uh, was that like, was that your last uh, Worlds that you felt that you was competitive or? Yeah, because I knew, and that was the other thing too. I knew if I went to that world um, in Jakarta, you know, I, we were starting a family. And at the time, you know, I, I had two young kids and they were, they were just taking more and more of my time, which is, which is fine. And that's why you have them. So the focus on racing became a little less than a hundred percent, you know, because when you go racing, if you're not a hundred percent focused on what you're there to do and put in the time to be the best, then it's really, you're just another racer. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I put a lot of effort into that Jakarta race. Didn't matter if some people win or some people didn't, you know, uh, didn't go. I put in 110%. Mm-hmm. And I knew that in the future, I wouldn't be able to do 110%, you know. Mm-hmm. Even though I want to do my best, I, you know, it, it, I just knew that that was my time, that if I'm going to do it, I need to do it now. No, I'm glad it happened. Yeah, you def- you definitely done it and became the second American world champion. So that's pretty yep. cool. That's pretty cool. So I'm gonna move on here. Uh you was Kyosho for a very long time in the golden era of Kyosho, we like to call it. Why do you think Kyosho was so dominant during these during this time? Uh when I came on board, it was kind of strictly eight scale. Mm-hmm. Um, they did have some a, a ten scale program, but it was really, really barbaric. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, ten scale or I should say eight scale, it was Kyosho or Mugen. And mm-hmm. Kyosho had such a reputation, such a strong reputation in eight scale that if you go eight scale racing, that's what you get. You get a Kyosho, you know. So when I came on board to race with them. I also came on board to help them develop some 10 scale stuff. So like the RB6, um, and then like some of the laser platforms, um, I worked closely with some of their designers and, uh, and worked on those projects. Cool. So you was with Kayoshu to what year you, you started, I would say what, what year did you start? Can you remember? I, maybe 99. Okay, and when did that tournament? When did that finish up? Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe oh nine or ten, something like that. So, so why do you? Why did your time at Kyosho end? You just wanted to move on or try something different? Uh, yeah. So when I was running Kyosho, um, I was you know I was working at Proline and then I ended up leaving Proline and and uh, went to go work for actually went to 
worked for Kyosho. And at the time, Kyosho presented us an opportunity, hey, to start another brand. And the brand being AKA, which was under the Kyosho uh, brand. So when I was working there, um, they ended up letting me go along with Gil and everyone else, and that's when AKA became a separate entity from Kyosho. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'll, I don't really want to support Kyosho in a way that, since I'm not working for them, it be, kind of became uh, two separate interests. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to keep it just very focused on on just the brand, AKA. Mm-hmm. And not so much on, oh, okay, hey, um, do the Kyosho and I'll do the AK thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I left I left Kyosho and then I went to go run uh, Losey Cars. Yeah. So, what, what, and, yeah. How did that decision come about to go to TLR? Uh, just at the time, we had a good relationship with our distributors and, you know, Horizon was a big part of, of AK And now you're retired somewhat, but still running uh, Associated, correct? Yeah, so my role as a racer became more of a weekend racer. And, and, um, you know, my son's racing quite a bit now Mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, he does quite well. But uh, Associated offered him a really good opportunity with with their vehicles. And... It was hard for me to, I would like to see him kind of go back with Associated just because that's where I started, but they truly did offer him a good opportunity, and not to say Losey didn't, but um, it just seemed a better fit at the time, you okay. know? Okay. Cool. So, we, we touched on a little bit on how AKA started, uh, and your involvement in AKA. Uh, through Kyosho, and then eventually, um, you guys just uh, formed you. Uh, well, like, well, that's going to be one of my my next questions. Is um, everyone thought you was an owner at AKA, uh, but how come you wasn't? Uh, a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, I was. Well, so when Kyosho owned AKA. Um, and then the owner of Kyosho decided that, hey, we can no longer, we don't have the, the funds to keep AK going. It was only a year old, but they couldn't quite see uh, they couldn't quite see where the where the where the company was going at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember Joel went over to a hobby show at the time and he came back and said, AK is no longer part of the show. I, myself and Gil purchased it away from Kyosho. Okay. And which was great. I still had a job 
But at the same time, I'm a little bit upset, to say the least, that I wasn't given an opportunity mm-hmm. to be a part of it when they when they went ahead and did that. So that was a little bit of a rough area for about a year and a half, two years um, mm-hmm. internally with us at AK. Um, just, I thought, out of common respect, I think because it's we all kind of started AK together, myself, Gil Losey, and Joel Johnson, that I would have been given an opportunity to do so. Instead, it was at the time, when that when I came to them, at the time, uh, I was told that, you know, lucky to have a job, um, you know, maybe down the road, if you buy out someone's share, something like that. So, Fast forward a few years later, and I met with Joel and Gil, and Pops offered me uh, his share of AK, but at the time, you know, I looked into it, and it wasn't exactly an equal share. It was it was part of their share, and uh, there's some other reasons, too, that I didn't pursue it, which I'm glad I didn't. Um, so... Yeah. How about your yeah. how about your time there? I'm I'm sure there was some good times. I mean, uh you guys developed some world championship tires. Um did what did you learn there? Like and just talk about the good times you did have at AKA. Yeah, no, I mean I mean to say it was horrible, I mean that'd be lying. I'm not I mean, yeah, for sure. We had we had some awesome times, you know. And um it's uh I think the most exciting part was taking something that was just on more or less an idea on a napkin and developing something here that was made locally in the U S and being able to compete against the companies that have been in business for a long time, you know, the pro lines, the J concepts and basically kind of change the way that these companies market their product, the way that they um, they look at the manufacturing side of their product because we really we changed the packaging. You know, mm-hmm. at the time everything was just coming in a bag with a little header card on the top. We were the first ones to do the the printed packaging with the nice Ziploc sealed bag. Uh, we were the first ones to come out with the molded uh, foam rubber inserts Mm -hmm. that you see in everyone else's tires now Mm -hmm. uh we were the first ones to bring that to market um there was just a lot of little things you know Mm -hmm. and um and that's what made ak very successful you know especially in the eight scale market and you know we ended up winning the first world championship with cody king in uh indonesia or no uh, in thailand and uh yeah, it was fun. I mean, there was definitely some good times, for yeah. sure. What do you think, uh, what was AKA's biggest influence on the tire game? Uh, biggest influence. Hmm. I would probably have to say the few things. Um, I would say the foam that's being used in the tires today, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, the city block tire and the way that we made it, the carcass design, it was, uh, 
it was it was a great multi-purpose tire at the time. So so the, the tire and that foam combo was was just great. It, we sold we sold so many of those tires. It was crazy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, so now we come to your departure from AKA. How did that come about, and what went wrong? All right. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> your departure from AKA. How did that come about? Okay. What went what went ultimately wrong to cause that? Well, I would say probably the last two years. I would say now three years being current. Um, but the last two years that I worked there, the company, you know, the economy in general was, was slowing down. Um, overseas sales were slowing down because the dollar was so strong. So margins were much lower in the product. Um, just so many things, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know one thing to point at, but the company was was becoming less and less profitable. And nothing was really done to change with the times. Um, you know, there's that saying, you know, the reason why the dinosaurs went extinct is because they didn't evolve. Mm -hmm. And when when companies don't evolve with changing times, they go extinct. And it's very true. And, you know, to say that I wasn't looking for a job, I, I mean, you could see the writing on the wall, you know, but mm -hmm. I, I always thought that I would be there until the end, right? Um, of course, I wanted to have a plan B exit just in case, but um, yeah, so was about a year or so ago. That's when Joel walked into my office and said, hey, we have to let you go. And I was like, okay. So I really? guess no one here is, no one else is going, you know, like I've been here from the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, there's no talk of decreasing salaries. There's no, no, we're, we decided that we're going to let you go. And that's just not something we can do. Um, so, so yeah, they let me go. Wow. Um, Crazy. And, yeah. So Joel was there to let me go. Gil, I never heard from Gil. Um, Gil wasn't there. Pops wasn't there. Um, just Joel. Okay. So when he let me go, it was at the end of the day on a Friday. And, you know, I, I've i never been out of a job or laid off or anything like that. So it was, it was kind of an eye-opener to me. Um, I guess what was more of an eye-opener to me is kind of the way that I was let go, being mm -hmm. somebody that started the company, that, hey, there's, you know, we want to offer you know, some type of severance package. Um, you've been with us from day one. You know, we want to make it right. Um, it was never offered that way. And the reason why I say that is because we had two other employees that worked for us that did receive some type of severance package really and and they weren't you know they weren't there they weren't the high profile employer i mean yeah great code up he did a lot of work and when he got let go he got a severance you know kind of helped him out in between finding another job and you know brent Figgy, he, he when he was he was gone he got paid out on all of his vacation time so um yeah so when i got let go i got my last paycheck and that was it 
Really? That must have been such a shock to you. So a lot of people don't know that. And so I wasn't very happy about it, of course. Um, I'm not trying to get my job back or anything like that, but I just wanted to know why it was taken that way. And um, so it was explained to me that the company has no money and we have to make sure that the company stays around. And uh, so anyway, that happened on a Friday. I called the comp- I called to speak with Joel on a Monday about some paperwork that I had to fill out being unemployed. And Joel wasn't in the office. He was on a vacation. <laughs> oh, wow. You must have been so, fuming. Yeah, I was upset. I would I be upset. upset. I would I mean, be upset. It's fine. He can go on vacation. I'm not saying he can't, but, you know, this was the song and dance from from the owners there is that, hey, we have no money. We have no money. But... Don't don't tell me that and then go on vacation the week after you know the the following week that you let me go. Yeah, I mean, to me it looked to me it looks bad. Yeah, you it's know? it's kind of like a the slap in the face. No money. Yeah, a slap in the face. Yeah. Uh, the other slap in the face was like, hey, no type of severance or you know uh, exiting, you know payment or you know just something to say, hey, look, you put in almost ten years with us and helped us get off the ground, mm-hmm. you know. It, here's a little bit of thanks as we let you go. You know, I'm sorry it didn't work out. So, wow. but unfortunately, that wasn't the case, and um, I ended up hiring an attorney to look at my case because, you know, what AK did for ten years was they used my name on to market AK product, and I wasn't compensated. All I wanted was a job, and you know, I, I I'm not that person, but. You know, I needed. I have a family, and and you know, I thought it was worth something that I'm going to fight for. If they want to use my name, then you're going to pay me to use my name. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so I ended up giving Joel a cease and desist letter, and he offered to put a sticker over my name. Wow, which to me wasn't wasn't the right thing to do. And um, we ended up working things out at the end. So I'm glad we could work on that. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I would say it didn't go the way that it, that I got let go. I hope that uh, it doesn't happen to anyone like that in our industry. I think, you know, we're it's a small industry and we need to treat each other respectfully. Mm-hmm. And I think when Dole sat there and looked me in the eyes and let me go, okay, I accept that. But to me, I think Gil not being there is part of an owner and because I work so closely with him and not be there, not call me, uh, uh, to me really showed, really showed the person that he is. Mm-hmm. And it's fine if he want to come on here and have a different story, but uh, that's the way it happened. And uh, I ended up doing some side work few weeks later for one of our vendors, completely non-RC related, um, but they were in the rubber industry and I ended up doing some side work for them and Gil found out about it and he said, and he texted me about two weeks later after I was let go from AK and offered me some side work if I ever needed it 
just use a sideboard for AK. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So how's uh, your how's your relationship with uh, Joe and Gil now? Do you guys speak? Uh, are you, you know, I, I, I'm guessing you do see uh, see each other at I, some I, races. No, um, I I don't really have a relationship with them. I mean, it really was. I never had an outside of relationship with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was more strictly a working relationship and now that I'm not in the industry anymore and especially the way that I was treated um, you know I have no desire to talk to them you know I don't blame you I would be pissed off too yeah I don't know them I can't say anything about them but I would be pissed off too just the way you got let go is pissing me off you know because I've been there I've had that done to me and I know how it feels yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It really sucks. And, um, you know, a lot of people, they don't know that. They just see the other side of it. And, you know, I think it's it's common courtesy if I did find another job. Hey, Joel. Hey, Gil. I'm going to give you a two-week notice. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to just bail out on you guys. Um, but, hey, I mean, everyone... Everyone goes about business differently, and that's how they do business. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you, uh, I, I have one more question now? That being as you're out of the tire game and out of the industry, do you think tires are too expensive in our hobby now? Uh, I mean, everything in general to me seems expensive, especially when I have to start paying for it. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, you know, it's really the nature of these tracks. The tracks kind of take, you know, they're so high grip now that tires just don't last like they used to, you know? So a set of tires for your car, you're looking at 40, 50 bucks. And, oh, yeah, that'll last you, maybe, depending on track conditions, maybe 20, 30 minutes. You know, it depends. It just depends where you go. But it's hard. It's hard with producing stuff. I mean, everyone's got to make some money. Mm-hmm. You know, companies have buildings that they have to pay for, employees that they have to feed. You know, it's it's tough. I get it. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the price is what it is. And um, you, you truly do get what you pay for. Yeah. And all these tire yeah. manufacturers now are really making good products. Um, and... It's hard. It's hard to say, you know. I think it's the track. I it think it's the. A- I-, I wouldn't say yeah, it's a- it is the track. Yeah, I think it comes down to that. People want high traction. They want smooth. They don't want to get their cars dirty. Uh, I used to always say back in the day, you could run a whole like I could run a whole race weekend with a set of crime fighters, you know, on a low me track that got blown out, and it worked fine. Now you need one runs, and it's insane the amount of tires and the amount of money. I see people putting in two tires to race. It's it's crazy. It's insane. But I, you want to go fast, you need to have good tires, don't you? So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, and now that I'm not with AK, uh, my relationship with Proline has really grown, and I, I'm happy with that, you know, um, that we kind of came back together. And, it, you know, leaving Proline was honestly one of the hardest things i've ever had to do Mm -hmm. with the exception of getting divorced um i mean proline was like family to me and 
and to leave. So going back to the pro line has done what for you, Mark? Yeah. So yeah, I've got you know since I left AK, I've established a good working relationship with pro line. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard leaving pro line <laughs> to say the least. I was you know. Uh, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. So to be back with Proline and Tim and Todd, um, I'm happy that my son can be racing with Proline and to be supported by them. That's cool. So after life after RC, what are you doing now? So uh, when I let go, when I got let go, I let everyone know, hey. Uh, on Facebook or when it's social media, either at AK, and uh, if they need to reach me, they can reach me here or by my phone. And, and this one friend, I should say, more or less, that I got to know through RC. Um, he RC'd a little bit, but he owned this company that took Mercedes Sprinter vans and converted them into these ultra high end outdoor adventure vans. Mm-hmm. and uh, so it was a really good fit they offered me a good position and you know a design customer relationship role and uh, yeah so I've been there just over a year now and wow their business is just booming the whole van, van life experience is, is pretty crazy yeah um Alex Morelli that owns Indy RC has one of those Mercedes box fans and he had it at the yeah. Nationals and he had that thing on every, all day every day it was so it was pimped out in there I, I, I went in there and saw it he had the air conditioner on it was really nice so I'm glad you're enjoying that um, and doing the van life and whatnot. but do you still in, get a chance to enjoy RC any? Yeah so now I'm a little more um, you know I don't take take time off to go do it. Obviously, I only have so much vacation time, and and I want to spend that you know with my family and and, and not so do it at the RC track. So if you do see me at the RC track, it's more of on the local level. Um, so you know, I'll probably stop by DNC and and say hi to everybody and and kind of hang out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, as as far as as far as uh, taking time to to go to these events, probably not. Yeah. Do you? Uh, but uh, do you go to support Ryan as well, or is he pretty much learned how to do this on his own now? Yeah, he's learned how to do it on his own. Um, he's been self self supporting his his own events, and you know that's what I wanted him to learn anyway. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't want to be there supporting him, but mm-hmm. if I'm doing all the work for him, he doesn't learn anything. Right. So, do you want him to uh, follow in your footsteps in the industry? You know, Ryan is so much, I know every parent probably says their kid's so much smarter than the next kid, you know. Um, But Ryan really is a bright kid, you know. Mm -hmm. He's in AP classes at school and, and math, the math side of it, I would say he does have to work at it, but it does come easier than it did for me. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the amount of math he's doing, he's at the highest level in math and he's only a junior right now. So 
which he has one more year left in high school. So, I mean, he's pretty gifted in, as far as that goes. Um, so I'd like to see him in some type of engineering role or, I mean, but at the end of the day, I'm going to try to support him in whatever he decides to do and uh, hopefully steer him in the right direction and guide where I can. Okay. That's cool. Would you, I'm, I'm sure you, he's watched you and he's learned a lot from you as well and how to maneuver throughout the industry as well. So, and he has, and it's, I guess it's kind of hard living up, being the son of you, you know, your name is, uh, you know, well-known within the industry. So like everybody's going to say, yeah, that's Ryan Pavitas, Mark's son. So he's kind of got to break out and make his own, uh, own way as well too. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he, at first we started off with a similar paint scheme, you know, like, oh, look, it's kind of similar, but we changed. But now he's kind of determined that he wants his own paint scheme and his own colors, and which is good. He's, he's self-identifying himself, and he's also self-identifying him, himself at the tr- racetrack with his own race results. So it's good. Okay. Um what advice do you have for parents with kids in RC? There's, there's a lot of kids, a lot of parents out there taking their uh, kids out of school, homeschooling them and making them do RC, hoping that they're going to be the next big thing. And you know how hard that is to be in RC. What advice do you have for yeah. them? I, I think it's a horrible decision. Um, I think it's easy to look short term and see what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you have no work experience or education of how things are done or and just be the RC racer, then at some point you're going to, I mean, RC racing doesn't last forever. I think you're starting to see some of these top pros, they're past their hump. And, mm-hmm. you know, they all have families now and getting bigger. And, and uh, I, I personally don't like the idea of kids going racing full-time or being homeschooled or but once you're 18 you can do whatever you want i guess right um but if there's a lot of people out there that like successful racers that race for a while and race during college and they were still fast they might not have gone to all the big races but you know at the end of the day um you know they they did well and they made a name for themselves you know barry pettit's one um Gosh, there's a there's so many kids that were fast that mm-hmm. go to school, you know. Yeah, it, uh, it it is a lot of kids like that. Do you do you miss working in the yeah. industry at all? Yeah, I, I mean to say no, I'd be lying. Uh, I do miss. Yeah, Ryan was doing the last few hours of practice there, and. You know, I haven't seen a lot of the guys since I left the day, you know, and run into them was, was cool. And you miss, you miss that, you know, mm-hmm. I miss the competitive part of it for sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's been a huge part of my life. Would so, you, would you, um, if you was offered a job back in this, in the industry, would you take it again? It would have to be the right job, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I'm pretty happy where I'm at. I mean, no job is absolutely perfect. Um, it, they they all have their issues, but um, yeah. 
Okay. I, I mean, it's possible, you know. I, I wouldn't count it out, but... Yeah. It's uh, anything's possible, dude. I, I always say Dagani was really smart. He did it as a pro racer, but he also had a backup job at the same time outside of RC. So, right. Um, yeah. You know, doing his clock repairs or whatever he does, which is pretty cool, too. <clears throat> um, all right. I know, I know you're almost yeah. home. So, and the, the internet's getting a little bit wonky. But what about the state of RC? Having worked in the industry, you obviously you know I'm a big myself. I'm a big proponent of RCGP. What do you think about something like RCGP? Do you think it's needed in the industry? I don't know all the ins and outs of it. I haven't really read too much about it. But I mean, RC to see these drones flying around and this and that, and they get airtime on ESPN and stuff like that. Like I get it because it's kind of a a video game like a gamer would get that sense of it but mm-hmm. i mean the one thing that R- i mean rc to me rc car racing is way better than watching drones fly around and then you know you can't even i, I don't get the whole drone thing but um, <laughs> i mean i get it from the aspect that it's cool like mm-hmm. when you're watching it in the headset or whatever but to watch them race like I I just I don't get it, you know. Um, RC racing to me, if it was presented the right way, could be have so much more, bring so much more value, I think, than these drone races. But it needs to be presented in the right way. And you know, one thing that we do right now, we have these week long events that there's no way mm-hmm. that any TV coverage is going to cover these events, you know. Mm-hmm. So these races need to be shorter and they need to be streamlined and have no issues and, um, entry limits possibly if they, you know, if they want to do TV time or something like that. But mm-hmm. I think if the right person comes in and it's presented the right way, then I, I think there's room for it to take off. If you was working for working in the industry at the moment, would you encourage your company to get involved in this into in RCGP? Our company really doesn't have... No, I, I mean, mean in your company, like like if you was working in the industry, say you was working for ProLine, would you encourage oh, them okay. to to uh, get into RC, in, involved with RCGP? Well, like I said, I don't know that much about it other than they're trying to bring it more mainstream. That's really all I know about mm-hmm. it. I, I haven't really dove too far into it. Um, I mean, it sounds like it's a good thing, but again, I don't know that much about it. So for me to voice my opinions on it would be, you know, no value. Well, I do appreciate this, Mark, but we have just two more segments to do. And I have a, I have a a segment that's actually, I have to do my introduction for it because it's, it's actually a sponsored segment and it's, uh, it's 10 questions in 10 seconds. I'm basically asking you 10 questions. You have to answer off the top of your head. So I'll just do my introduction, and after that, I have a few, <clears throat> few questions that some guys that some 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 guys on Facebook have asked on our No Name RC po- podcast page. So I'm going to do my introduction for this, and then I'm going to start on the questions. So, okay. hey guys, we got Mark Pavitas here, and this is the FastRaceShop.com ten question ten second segment. Please go to FastRaceShop.com, type in Lefty two thousand and nineteen, and you get ten percent off your order. 
You guys know who Fast Race Shop is because I've been telling you all this time. They got awesome uh, trinkets and bits for your cars to bling your car to make it look good. Great shock caps and awesome um, <clears throat> honeycombed bladders. So you ready for this, Mark? Yep. Okay, question one. Motocross cycling. Only, only one more. It's only one answer, right? One yeah. Answer. Yeah. Or, you know, one of quick answers. You can do it as. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. I know that I see from Facebook that you're average into motocross, cycling, and RC. Which two of these would you remove? If you had to remove two, which would they be from your life? Uh. Remove two? Yeah, if you only had to stick with one of those three those three hobbies, what would you stick with? I would probably keep cycling and remove motocross and RC. The reason is uh, cycling is just a lot more of a healthier sport. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number two, if you could change one thing in RC right now, what would it be? Get rid of the million sponsored people. <laughs> okay. Saxton, Degani, Bradley, or Quartz, which one will take you out for the win? Oh, it's a no-brainer. And if anyone answers this with a different name, they should be shot. Quartz. Really? Yeah. Okay. Everybody, everybody says Saxton used to take guys out. Oh, no, 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 no. Quartz. Okay. Quartz. All right, so I know you don't know too much about RCGP, but basically it's like two-man teams. So if you had an RC company and you was going to enter a team in RCGP, what two drivers, past or present, would you would they be? Which, which two drivers would you put in there? Uh, I would say an RCGP just for eight scale? Yeah, it's just rate scale and it's just a two-man team. I'm going to go with myself mm -hmm. and are you, can I pick myself? Yeah, you can. Okay. Um, myself and let's see. Yeah, I'll go with Saxon. I'll okay. pick Saxon. All right, cool. Number five, if you did not live in America, where would you be living? Oh my gosh! Uh, why are these questions so hard? Um, uh, Mexico. Mexico. Yes, I like I Modelo's. No, uh, there's too many good choices. Modelo's and tacos. You can't go wrong with that. Exactly, and I love Mexican food. So. Yeah. Number six, should gas truck come back? No. Okay. Number seven, what class of RC would you like to see Ryan focus on? Uh, eight scale. Okay, and um, number eight, Name one RC track you wish still existed. Hot track. Number nine. Who is the best RC driver ever that never really made it? 
When you say made it, like became a professional and and won and basically done what you guys done. There's a lot lots of guys that have had talent, but there's a lot lots of guys that haven't fulfilled that talent. Who was the most talented guy that never made it? I I would say I mean not not that this person was I mean granted he was super talented, but I think he really worked hard. It would have to be Chad Bradley. Yeah, um, he worked really hard did a lot of testing and practicing and he just never got that big win mm-hmm. yeah and that, that's true I could say that I would agree with that and number 10 the best 8 scale car you've ever had you've ever raced uh, I mean I mean yeah Kyosho really which one uh, well I mean of course my world's car I mean you mm-hmm. go back to then and I mean, without that car, I can't win the world. So that has to be the best car. <laughs> okay. Now, I have a, a few questions from some some of our followers on our Facebook page. So it, I'm going to just go through them really quick. So I know you got to get home. You want to relax. Okay. Aaron Klein says, your biggest rival of all time. Brian Kinwell. Okay. Uh, Justin Mann says, ask me to ask you about blowing chunks in my rhino. <laughs> oh, that was that was his fault. No, it, he took me on a ride Thanksgiving when we were at the desert, and uh, yeah, I had too much to drink, and he finished me off. <laughs> um, Mick Craddock asked about skateboarding at his house. Oh God, that did, probably don't sound too good. Like it happened. So I went over to England to do a, a um, AK did a weekend event in England where AK had a control tire. It was just more of a low key, but a lot of top racers went. They used a control tire for eight scale. And then the following after that event was over, I spent a week and I traveled to a couple different tracks uh, working on carpet um, and AstroTurf tires for AK. And during that time I was there, uh, I was staying with, with, uh, Mick and Michelle at their house and I, they, they tried to poison me one night drinking and mm-hmm. they did a good job. And then I, apparently I tried to ride a skateboard down their stairs in the backyard. Oh, that couldn't have ended, ended too good. You must have felt that in the morning. No, no. Yeah. I was, my head hurt. <laughs> yeah. Patrick Matthew Dillon Jr. Do you still have your world's winning car hanging on a wall or in a trophy case? He actually has two questions. And he goes, was the magnesium head OS motor your favorite motor of all time? Um, The engine was, but not the magnesium head. Okay. SJ Shatler, who's a JQ guy over in the UK, he says, if you was going to spend your own money on a car, what would you buy right now? On a real car? No, on a <laughs> on an eight scale car. No, RC car. Yeah, on an eight scale car. Um, I yeah, I'd say the associated car. Yeah. You know, I built it. Um, quality is really good. Um, the ease of maintenance is is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are those are all things that you need to consider when you purchase a car. So 
I think Associated did a really good job job on their eight scope car. Yeah, quick access diffs and whatnot. That's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Ken, last question: Can Spencer do pros modify their engines, or do they run them straight out of the box? I'm guessing he's asking if there are modified engines for pro guys. No, I mean the stuff that we get, the sponsor guys get from OS. My stuff came directly from Japan, mm-hmm. and it didn't even come broke in. Mm-hmm. Um, they they send you pretty much the same stuff they're sending everyone else. You know, just um, you're breaking it in maybe different than the next guy. So yeah, it's all <laughs> stuff you can get off the shelf. Cool. Well, man, I appreciate your time. Are you going to get down and watch Reedy, watch uh, Ryan race race live this weekend? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get down there on Sunday and cheer him on. And, um, you know, hopefully he can make it into the final. There's a lot of fast guys in that open class. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how you get faster. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He's uh, he's putting in the work. Um, too bad him and Max can't have another rematch this year from DNC. Um, they, <laughs> they actually got – it was so funny watching them – like they just finished racing and then they were like playing around in the pits afterwards. Like I was like, so crazy. I wish we could all be kids again like that, you know. So Yeah, yeah. But um thank you for your time, bud. It was it was actually very interesting to talk to you. I've never talked to you before. I'm glad we got to hear your side of the AKA um debacle, I guess I'll call that that. And you have a good weekend and I wish Ryan really good luck at uh Reedy this weekend. Yeah, Keenan, I really appreciate uh, you allowing me to come on your show and uh, and you know go over the sub different subjects and you know bring back a lot of these memories, both good and bad. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate so, your time, man. Oh, truly good. Okay, well, I'll probably see you at DNC, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'll stop by and I'll say hi. All right, have a good evening. Thank maybe you. Maybe I'll your- drive. Maybe I'll drive a van. One of our $200,000 vans out there. That would be cool. That, I would uh, it'll probably need some heating or air conditioning at some point, you know? So Yeah, I, it's got it. I got to drive the janky JQ van from the North Coast, I mean, from the East Coast to California in a couple weeks, so that's going to be fun. Oh, uh, yeah. All right, man. All right, well, you have a good night. All right, thank you for your time, and uh, have a good weekend. All right, Keenan. Okay, bye-bye.